name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to the Bible in a Year, the Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that calls us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. While I have taught in Christian universities for over 15 years in marketing, innovation, and leadership, I have not been formally trained in theology, and I have personally found it difficult to read the entire connected story of the Bible on my own, because I hope I'm not alone in this, it can be hard to understand. I have read, listened to, and watched countless hours of commentary, and my hope is that this podcast offers an academic perspective that invites you to discover, discuss, and develop your relationship with the Lord, your church, and others by getting into the one connected story of the Bible as I read it out loud and share second resources and short commentaries that helped me. There is a team of us working to bring you this Bible in a Year reading plan and podcast that will take you from Genesis to Revelations, where we share links in the reading plan and episode descriptions to biblical scholars, offering short clarifications from those sources to help you reflect on the greatest story ever told. We'll explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story. Day one. As a reminder, I'm going to be using the NIV version of the Bible, although there's a lot of other versions of the Bible, and they're pretty cool too. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to the various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be light in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years." And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. 
And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the waters teem and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. The sixth day. A Psalm of David. Psalms 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoice to run his course. It rises out one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is a great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, 
Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Okay, so Genesis 1, I think it's one of my favorite chapters of the whole Bible. It's the beginning of the story. It start with, starts with in the beginning, right? So in my mind, um, I, I hear Genesis 1-1 something like this. In a primordial place before time, God acts to bring a functional kingdom into existence. From non-existence, God establishes the skies above and the land, which is the ground below. So I spent some time in biblical commentaries. One of my favorites, which I would encourage you to look into, is um, Dr. John Walton. So he has an entire book called The Lost World of Genesis 1. Um, it is fantastic. You can audiobook it. You can read it. I believe he also has lectures on seminary now and shares a few on um, Facebook and YouTube. But really, Genesis 1-1 is telling us that God is our creator. He can make something out of absolutely nothing, right? So he transcends. He doesn't just stand outside of time and space and material, the three things that make up our metaphysical world, but he can also exist in it, which we'll learn more about um, in Genesis 1-2. Right. So something really interesting that Dr. John Walton brings up is that in the in the ancient world, um, the focus was on the purpose of something um, on order versus chaos and on who was reigning or who had dominion over something in order to keep keep the order. Right. So they were less focused on the material. So in the world today, we focus a lot on the material of something. And and then we sometimes ask why that's there or what the purpose is, but it's literally the reverse in the ancient world. So when we read Genesis 1, it's not a science book. Um, it is. Uh, it quickly becomes poetry, uh, li- literally poetry, and it's focused on cosmology and telling us whose we are, um, wh- who he created us to be, in what context, which is his creation. Because the Bible is a story about God, and we're just a part of it. And when we we give it that weighted big awesomeness that it really has. There's a lot of mystery and excitement in it, but there's also a lot of clarity and truth. Um, So Genesis 1-1, God is creator and he can make something out of nothing, right? Then we move to Genesis 1-2. It's like, dun, dun, dun. The problem is introduced. There's no order and no inhabitants, right? So this is how I would read it out after reading commentaries. And I also highly recommend the Bible Project. They even have an entire, uh, like almost eight minute video just on Genesis 1. And then Dr. Tim Mackey, one of the co-founders, he does a number of incredible lectures if you YouTube it just on Genesis um, 1. So Genesis 1-2, I would read, now the land was wild and waste. Uh, So in Hebrew, it's tohu vohu, if I say that correctly. So now the land was wild and waste, which was understood by the ancient Israelites, the first of God's followers who first heard this story. They would have heard it as the land that was unordered and uninhabitable. So that's the problem, right? What was there was unordered and uninhabitable, 
right? So the next part would be darkness was over the face of the deep abyss, abyss, which would have been understood as the absence or the opposite of light, a place of chaos, non-existence, essentially like a primordial bottomless pit, right? And then the excitement, the drama happens, right? So the wind, ruhach, the wind, breath, presence of God was hovering over the face of these this dark, deep, wild, chaotic place they call waters. It's hovering over the face of the waters. So here in Genesis 1-1, we learn that God is creator. Here we learn that God is also a maker, which means that something that's already created, he can restore, he can redeem, he can renew what is already there. So it's like in Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, we learn two of the coolest, biggest things about God. He can create something out of nothing, and he is capable of making shaping and interacting with what's already created in supernatural and in natural ways. So, so exciting, right? So we have the problem. Next, um, we have the realms, right? So the tale, when, when I was younger, you know, it's described, which it is in in the seven days, um, all the things that God created, but I, and it, that doesn't change. But after spending time um, reading from people like Dr. John Walton and Dr. Tim Mackey um, and um, Dr. Longman, it, it became clear to me that in the ancient Hebrew language and culture, what was understood is that God created three realms and then to create order. And then he put inhabitants in those realms to represent him because what we also learn about God is that he um, wants to share and give his power and give uh, responsibility, a portion of his power and authority um, to other things to reflect him, to be symbols of him in creation. So let's get a little bit closer. So the problem, there's no order and no inhabitants. So the first realm of order on day one is light. Let there be light, God's own glorious light. This is interesting because in Revelations 21, in new creation, it says that there will be no need for the sun or moon because we will live in God's glorious light. And so zoom back in here, Genesis Genesis 1, this God is, has not created the sun, moon, or stars yet. So when it says, let there be light, this is God's glorious light. So it's the first realm, which if, if, you know, if you, if you go back or you have your Bible open, you can also see all the language that's talking about the fact that this first realm establishes time, which is one of the first and most critically important elements of metaphysical reality, right? And then on day two, God split the chaotic waters into two realms, the skies and the seas, and then on the third day, God establishes the land, which comes out of the chaotic waters. And God invites plants and fruit trees to emerge out of the land as like a bonus, right? Now, after the realm of time, sky and sea and land have been ordered, it's time for inhabitants. So on day four, let there be light in the vault of the sky. The sun, moon, and stars reflect God's light and act as symbols. He gives and assigns them as a portion of his power and authority to separate day and night. Then on day five, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let the birds fly above the land, right? He's filling the sky and the sea realm. Very special. Moving to day six, let land produce living creatures and then 
matching the bonus act that was in day three, where God invites plants and trees to emerge. On day two, day, God creates a special land creature called humans. That's right. In Hebrew, humans means Adam, which is sometimes confused because in other places um, in Genesis 1 and 2, as we move forward, we'll be talking about Adam as an individual man. But in Hebrew, Adam also means or in some cases is referring to humanity. So then God provides all plants from uh, from day three as food. Humanity is the climax of days one through six, which is why God describes it as very good. Um, this is what helps to illustrate its importance when on all the other days, he describes it as good. Um and sometimes, just as a quick caveat, I think we assume good because we're 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 raised to be many of us Western um, Greek and philosophical thinkers. We think good means um, morally good, when in Hebrew it was more about its functional purpose and usefulness, its design exactly how God wanted it designed, um, and and didn't really have that same connection to the fast forward um, moral moral concepts that we consider today. So day six, there's importance. Uh, it's, it's explained. It's the f- Now we have to move to the first poem, which talks about who are these humans and what are they supposed to do as inhabitants in this ordered world, right? So who are we? Um, Genesis, so zoom close into Genesis 1, 26 through 28. First poem in the Bible. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So humans come up from the ground like all other land creatures, but they are also more. They are created in the image of God, male and female to embody and represent the creator within his creation. As a marketing professor, my brain goes straight to brand ambassador, right? So we're, we're God's brand ambassadors, like living representatives of him in creation um, because he designed us to do that, because we belong to him and he created us for this for this incredible co-relationship. Uh, but it's I think it's Dr. John Walton. He calls us vice regents, right? God has supreme authority, but he chose to give his portion of power and authority to us um, to represent him. And we sometimes focus, I think, perhaps too much on our personal brands or our expressions of those brands. And I think sometimes we get lost the, the fact that we already belong to him. We've already been given identity and that, um, yes, he's given us all of these wonderful different bodies and cultures and ethnicities and so many differences to express him. But we're, we're united in the fact that we all belong to God and he gave us um, our brand name. Also note where it says we are made in our image. Who is our, right? I remember when I first just like really read that. I was like, well, who is our? And I think some people, um, you know, want to, and I think I did it too. I jumped straight to, oh, it's the Trinity, right? But but again, if we're using the exegetical method of reading the whole Bible in an ordered way, we can't really take concepts from the New Testament because you also know that the word Trinity isn't even in the Bible, right? It's our way of talking about God the Father, Yahweh God, God the Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord, and uh, the Holy Spirit. But we haven't been introduced to Jesus or the Holy Spirit yet, so it's probably not good to make 
that concept absolute, that this has to do with the Trinity. Someone else I want to introduce to you or recommend if you already know him is Dr. Michael Heisner, who did his entire dissertation on the supernatural world of the Bible and does a great exegete and explanation for this idea of being created in our image and likeness. It's very thought-provoking, and I believe he also has podcasts and other resources, but his one of his famous books is The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible, which really helps to touch on a, a lot of the passages and verses and concepts that deal with the Elohim or the heavens and, um, and the supernatural world, which— um, was a a big part of the ancient world. It's a really big part of our world. But sometimes I think, uh, even though we love Hollywood and imagination, I think sometimes we try to take it out of reality in our everyday lives when God very much put it there. And uh, I think he does a great job of that, if you are interested in that. And then I just want to zoom in on a couple more things. This is why I only put Genesis 1 in this first (laughs) session in in, so in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, we're given identity and purpose. We're called in, into creation vocation. Then in Genesis 1, 28, where God blesses humans, male and female, with provision, says to be fruitful, and future generations, which is described as increasing in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Couple clarifications. So in Hebrew commentaries, subdue or kavash it really means have the power to fight against the things that lead to death. So subdue really means have the power to fight against the things that lead to death. So it's giving us direction. So it's not just like subdue the things that we think are wild or personally agitating. It has to do with as cre- being called into creation vocation. We're called to subdue the things that are we have we know based on the bible and the immutable character of god that lead to death and dominion um ruling over right it literally means with care and fairness over the natural universe so there is an embedded sense of guided direction um which i think is really really interesting And again, probably because I'm a marketing professor, clarification here is that sometimes I think we read it and we think, oh, I need to do work and care for things and then God will bless me and I will be fruitful and have provision and I will have children and future generations. We connect this work and profit relationship and then I think we end up accidentally saying our purpose is profit and we need to pursue the profit. And if we don't have the profit, it means we're not worthy or we're not doing the work well, which is really not exactly true. And it's not what's being said here. So if you if you cross-reference other passages in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy and Numbers, you'll note that when 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 talking about children as being blessings in future generations and provision, God wants to give those to his people. No matter what, he just wants to give those to his people. So we should all rest assured that God wants to bless us. That's what he's saying in Genesis 1.28. And he's also saying, I have designed you to work, to rule over and subdue in this way. But our purpose isn't profit. He gave us our purpose to subdue have the power to fight against the things that lead to death, and to rule with care and fairness over the natural universe guided by him, 
right? And that profit is his realm. It's his responsibility. He's the giver and controller of the outcome. I have to say that again. He's the giver and controller of outcome. So profit can be an indicator, a natural indicator, because there can be patterns of relationship between work and profit. But we don't base our hope or our absolute thinking in that patterned out natural relationship because we know, based on the Bible, that God is the ultimate giver and controller of outcomes. This will help us along the way, this truth, because sometimes people will work hard and not receive the profit that they expected, or they won't do work and they will receive unusual amounts of profit. And and we have to rest assured that God is working all of this out because the truth is the truth, which is in the Bible. He wants to bless the children, his children. He wants to bless you and he wants you to work because he's given you power and authority to do so. So we just have to be very careful with that um, relationship. There's so much in here, highlighting a few things. One of the last things I just want to qualify is this concept of darkness. Um, so in Genesis 1-2, darkness was over the face of the deep abyss. Darkness will come up again in other passages and the term darkness offers a mystery that is worth exploring and the Hebrew letters chosen to make up the word darkness may offer some insight um, because I think our assumption is that darkness is evil and the Bible doesn't make that clear connection all the time that darkness is evil, um, although sometimes it, it absolutely is. So part of the Hebrew word darkness is C-H-E-T. It's the first part of the word darkness in Hebrew, which means a private or separate, typically a protected quiet place, a sanctuary or inner room. So for example, when you desire to be there, me, I'm introverted, love the idea of being in a quiet, solitary space, it brings this inner sense of peace. It's perceived as grace, favor, refuge, where you can find rest, a protected garden sometimes, right? When you desire not to be there, though, it may feel more like a loneliness. You're trapped within the silent, separated, cutting-off place. So C-H-E-E-N, another part of the Hebrew word for darkness, the second part of the word in Hebrew, is like an illustrated picture of teeth being crushed or pressed down and destroyed. It can, it can relate to a word like consume or destroy. The last part of the word darkness in Hebrew means palm of the hand. It has twin meanings, to cover or uncover. It's like to open or close the hand. It can mean to open and allow or to close and forbid entrance. So a mouth can open or close to separate and a door can open or close to you. That can be both a refuge or an escape right? So darkness can refer to calamity or evil and most certainly represents a power that is the opposite of God who is light, but also something he has sovereignty over, but allows for the sake of permitting the humans he gave agency to, right? Because again, what's he doing in Genesis 1? He's giving us agency, which is crazy because all other ancient gods did not create their their people <laughs> to have agency, um, which is another testament to God's immutable character. 
so they may pursue the light and find rest under the shadow of his wing, and he will be the hand or the door that protects against evil. Yet the calamity will be a part of our human experience because we and others will at times choose to pull into the darkness, and some may become consumed with evil, and God will also, um, he'll open the door and walk into it to come get us. He leaves the 99 to go pursue the one. He will open his hand and let you walk away, and he will pursue you if you find yourself in it. He will not be um, far if you call, but you may be walking into and pursuing a loneliness and an anxiety of your own making because you are not and cannot produce your own light. And what's so cool about the relationship between light and dark in the metaphysical sense is that darkness can never consume the light ever. But in the presence of light, darkness has to flee. It consumes it. It pushes it away. So we're, we're given this power to reflect, and it's just so interesting to think about this. In summary, first day, get into your commentaries, reflect on, on these different words and ideas. Original language, cultural context can just give you such a bigger picture. It did for me. I hope it does for you of who God is, who we are, what's going on. It's the beginning of the story. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow. <laughs>